Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Well, before we get started this evening, got some interesting stuff to go over. Let's have a prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you're in fellowship. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening, that we arrived here safely, and that as we study your word, we know that uh, God the Holy Spirit is using it to strengthen our souls, strengthen our spiritual life, and there are so many different facets to Scripture, to your revelation, but as they all come together in our own spiritual life, we know that it prepares us for that which you have for us in the future, prepares us for service now and for service in the kingdom. Now, Father, we pray that as we study tonight that we can focus and concentrate that as we sit down after the end of a busy day that we will not grow too weary and sleepy, but that we will be able to concentrate and think clearly about what's being taught and that God the Holy Spirit can use it mightily in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in a fact, you ought to change all the titles in this series back to sea level all the numbers in this series for about the last six or seven weeks. When we, I didn't realize I'd be off on dispensationalism quite this long. But we have been looking at key elements in dispensationalism and understanding the fact that there's this big shift that took place as a result of what, took, what happened on the cross and the ascension and the whole cross event, let's say, which takes in the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension brings us to a point where Jesus Christ is in a unique place right now at the right hand of the Father. And we would say that he is in session. He is not ruling. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, serving and operating as high priest. And that's an important thing to understand in relationship to a lot of the differences between dispensational understanding of Scripture and what you find in replacement theology and in covenant theology. But at the root of everything is this this issue that just drives so many things today is hermeneutics or interpretation, how you understand the Bible. How do you go about interpreting not just the Scripture but anything? Because once you get into a relativized culture, 
And that just doesn't apply to the United States or Western civilization today, but you had elements of relativistic thinking in the Old Testament and judges. A lot of times in the period of the judges, especially in the northern kingdom, you had relativistic thinking that dominated uh, Greek, Greek thought as well as uh, Roman thought. So as long as you have relativistic thinking, and you always have relativistic thinking whenever your ultimate reference point is within creation and you don't have a creator that stands completely outside of creation. And so what happens, even if you get a fuzzy idea of something out there that you can't really identify, which is what some people will say Plato had and Aristotle had, but if you look at what they do, you look at the how they have this thing that they call the chain of being, he's not really that out there. The ultimate unmoved mover in Aristotle is not really out there. And how in the world can you define the what? Now, this is going to fry some brain cells. How can you define what something is or, or if you, if, or that something is? Excuse me. How can you define what that something is if you don't know what it is? I mean, if you don't know the attributes and characteristics that qualify God as God, as a creator God that's over against and distinct from all his creation, if you don't have any of the things that make up what he is, how do you know that he is? I mean, how do you know that he is an independent, infinite creator God if you don't know what he is? And the only place that you know what he is is going to be starting from from, uh, Scripture. Now, there is, according to Romans chapter 1, evidence from creation, but it's not defined in terms of special revelation. It's just general revelation, but it's enough to hold man accountable, but it's not enough to get any get for, uh, very far in terms of specifics. So all through history, we've had this relativistic culture. In the last couple of weeks, I've sort of gone through a history of interpretation, how Greek thought gave, gave rise to allegorical interpretation, which is certainly relativistic, that what something means is determined by whoever reads it. Allegory can mean, uh, something can mean any number of different things to, to different people. And I kept coming back to the fact that in, in, um, in dispensationalism, we believe in a consistent, there's your key word, consistent, literal, plain interpretation. And I throw this quote up there, the last four or five lessons from David L. Cooper, and I'm, I've got to correct myself. I got corrected. Uh, I was always told David Cooper was Arnold Fruchtenbaum's pastor, but he really wasn't. He was a mentor, though. Uh, Arnold was mentored and pastored sort of by a missionary with the American Board of Missions to the Jews, a West Texas guy by the name of Burl Haney. And Burl Haney is the one who turned Arnold onto the writings of David L. Cooper. David Cooper was not a Jew. He was a Gentile, but he was very much involved in Jewish evangelism. And uh, he coined this definition of literal interpretation probably 60 years ago. And I, have, I never ran into this while I was in seminary, but I have run into it a lot since I've been in seminary. And people everywhere seem to use this. It's a very usable definition that literal interpretation is when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, make no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context 
studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicates clearly otherwise. Now, I want to point out something there at the end. He says there's the only thing that, that would mitigate against taking a passage literally is the immediate context. Study in the light of related passages. What's that? That's a little broader context. See, if, if you're doing a study of John 3.16, you have to study it and understand it within the context of Jesus' communication with Nicodemus there in John 3, 1 through 15. But you have to understand that within the context of the Gospel of John. And you understand that within the context of the New Testament, and that's within the context of the message of the Bible as a whole. So you constantly have these concentric circles of, of context. That's very, very important. And the old adage that if you take the text out of its context, you're left with a con. And that is so true. That is what happens with in, in too many things. And, you know, as, as things would have it in the providential plan of God, we have an illustration of this ripped from the headlines of today's news. So, we have a... Every morning this week, it seems like there's this news item related to a statement made by uh, Rush Limbaugh on one of his one of his uh, uh, morning comments, his morning update. Now, let me say a couple of things before we get into this. First of all, it doesn't really matter what you think of Rush, whether you agree with his views or you don't agree with his views, uh, whether you like his personality or dislike his personality. The issue here is merely an issue of understanding interpretation in hermeneutics. And you have to have a solid, consistent, literal hermeneutic to have stability in any culture. And this is just a great example of, of why, we, why we have a lot of the problems that we have. Now, apparently, I think it was early last week, Rush did a morning update. He has these little, like, 30-second little blurbs that are played out on various radio shows that host his show, and they, um, they're played in the morning kind of as, as teasers to grab your attention, and then uh, his show comes on in the afternoon. And this is a pretty simple, straightforward little comment, and so I was able to put the whole thing up here so you can read it in its context. Now, what everybody's all upset about is the liberal Democrats get up in the Congress, both in the Senate and the House, and want to use the Senate to condemn Rush, which is totally absurd in itself. Why would you use Congress to, to want to condemn a talk show host? Okay? So he had this morning comment, and he talks about this one soldier whose name was Jesse Macbeth. And the big, the big uh, flap is all about the fact that he's being accused of calling any U.S. soldier who was against the war in Iraq, a phony soldier. Well, we have to listen to what Rush says, okay? First of all, I want you to pay attention to context. So when he makes this initial morning comment, this is what he said. The anti-war left has its celebrities, and one of them was, quote, Army Ranger Jesse Macbeth. Now, what made this 23-year-old corporal a hero to the anti-war crowd was not his Purple Heart or his being afflicted with post-traumatic stress disorder from tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. No, what made Army Ranger Jesse Macbeth a hero to the left was his courage in their view off the battlefield. Without regard to consequences, he told the world the abuses he said 
he had he said he had witnessed in Iraq American soldiers killing unarmed civilians, hundreds of men, women, and even children. In one gruesome account translated into Arabic and spread widely across the Internet, Macbeth describes the horrors this way. We would burn their bodies, hang their bodies from the rafters in the mosque. And uh, he goes on to say, Recently, Jesse Macbeth, the poster boy for the anti-war left, had his day in court. He was sentenced to five months in jail and three years probation for falsifying a Department of Veteran Affairs claim, his Army discharge record, too. Yes, Jesse Macbeth was in the Army for 44 days before he was washed out of boot camp. Macbeth is not an Army Ranger. He's not a corporal. He never won the Purple Heart. He was never in combat to witness the horrors he claimed to have seen, never went to Iraq, never went to Afghanistan. So... Notice, nowhere in this initial morning report do you hear the phrase phony soldier. He is simply, Rush is simply commenting on the fact that this guy has become a darling of the anti-war left, and they they touted him and trotted him out and everything until it was uh, revealed that the guy was a fraud, and he was indeed uh, phony. Now, we've studied enough about hermeneutics and interpretation the last few weeks to see three important principles that relate to to any kind of interpretation. First of all, meaning is determined by the author, not the reader or the listener. So that means that the meaning of what what Rush said is not determined by who listens to it. It's determined by his intent. It's called authorial intent. Second thing we have to remember is that anything must be understood in light of the times in which it was written or spoken. That means context. So you have to recognize that there's three levels of context that any anything has. It's the immediate context, the surrounding paragraphs, statements, explanations. That's part of the immediate literary or oral context. Second level of context would be the broader context of the writer or the speaker. Any of us could say things uh, publicly where we misspeak. I've misspoken at times where I've said one thing and I meant just the opposite. That can happen to anybody who's on radio, television, who is speaking uh, uh, frequently. So you have to look and say, well, did he really mean that? Well, look at this whole body of evidence and say, well, that would contradict everything that person has ever said, so obviously they misspoke. So you have a broader context of the writer or speaker. Or maybe the writer, like we find in Scripture a lot of times, says something that conceivably could go this way or that way, and you have to interpret it in light of the broader context and say, well, he couldn't have meant X because if he meant X, it would go against everything else he said, so obviously he must have meant Y. And then you have a cultural or historical context. Now, let's look at, analyze what Rush said. Now, what happened in terms of the context that day is later on in his afternoon show, somebody called in and talked to Rush and complained about how the liberal left was using a lot of phony soldiers like Jesse Macbeth. They weren't they weren't men who had actual men or women who had actually served in combat, been to Iraq or anywhere else, but they would just call up talk shows and say, I'm a I'm a vet and I'm against the war in Iraq. And so within that context, Rush then used the term which was first introduced by this guy who called into the show, he used the term phony phone phony soldier. But the night before in a piece done, this is where you get into the broader con- historical context, 
the night before on ABC News, and apparently in several nights before this, ABC, CBS, and NBC had all done stories on Jesse Macbeth. And Charlie Gibson on ABC Evening News introduced the term phony soldier. So, you know, just like when I exegete through Scripture, I say, well, we have to look at where this term came from because it has an original context like the term Son of Man in Daniel 7. Same thing. Where did phony soldier come from? It came from Charlie Gibson, but nobody's attacking Charlie Gibson. Nobody's attacking anybody else on uh, CBS or NBC. And so Rush picks up this term. And then the broader context of, let's say, Russia's life, this man has unequivocally stood behind the American military for uh, at least 15 years. I think Tommy Ice introduced me to Rush Limbaugh about 1990 when we were driving to a pastor's conference in Kansas City. And he'd already been on the radio a couple of, couple of years before that with when his current type uh, format. But... You know, this man has consistently stood behind the, the U.S. military. He has never said anything derogatory about the military or our soldiers. And the only thing he said about it, and I happened to have listened to the segment that particular day on my way back uh, from somewhere. And um, I heard him talking about this. And he never used the term phony soldier in relationship to anybody other than those who claim to have been what they in actuality were not. He never used a term to refer to legitimate servicemen who served their time, had gone to Iraq, and they came back and questioned perhaps what was going on. But you also have to th think in terms of another broader context. Context. Remember the liberals who are unhappy with this, and I'm not using party names on purpose because it's not just a I, there's a lot of Republicans who are just as screwed up as a lot of Democrats. It's a mindset. It's a worldview. They can. I, I saw on Fox and Friends yesterday morning. They interviewed a Democratic senator and a Democrat and a Republican senator. And the Democratic se senator said, "Well, I've read the whole transcript of everything Rush Limbaugh said, and he condemned all of the servicemen who are against the war." The other guy said, well, I read everything, and he didn't do that. You, just, you didn't understand what he said. Now, see, the issue is hermeneutics. The issue is understanding. The issue is how can these two men who claim to have read the uh, transcript claim that it means opposite things? Now, a couple of things we have to remember is that the liberals who have misinterpreted this are the same wonderful group of people who have brought you the whole concept of the Constitution being a living document that can be reinterpreted in every generation. See, it's a whole mindset of postmodernism and relativistic thinking that shapes what they do. They look at something and read it, and they've got this filter, this relativistic filter there that between the paper and their brain uh, black is turned to white and right is turned to wrong because of that worldview. That's the power of presuppositions and a worldview. I remember a professor I had in seminary used to say, used to illustrate presuppositions this way. You have a man who is totally convinced he's dead. I mean, this guy's almost on the verge of a psychotic break. He's convinced he's absolutely dead, so he goes to a psychotherapist who works with him for three or four years to try to convince him 
that dead people don't bleed. And finally, this patient is convinced that dead people don't bleed. And he goes on, the uh, psychiatrist goes on for some time till he's absolutely convinced that this guy firmly is entrenched now in the idea that dead men don't bleed. And, and when he gets to that point, the guy comes in for his appointment, he whips out a needle and pokes him in the arm, and the, guy, the patient starts to bleed. And the guy looks down at his bleeding arm and he goes, how about that, dead men bleed after all? See, presuppositions are often not taken out of the closet, the cellar of our minds, and examined. We hold them to be so true and self-evident that we never take them out into the light of day to evaluate them. And so when we read certain things, we interpret them within our grid and in light of our presuppositions, and we're not even aware, self-conscious, of the fact that that's exactly what we're what we're doing. So when we look at these liberals who are accusing Rush of this, there are several things we should observe in terms of hermeneutics. First of all, they have an agenda, a worldview that causes them to call wrong right and right wrong. It's that relativistic human viewpoint worldview. And it's not a rational issue. It is that there's something else going on. Remember, in the, the unbeliever, The unbelieving atheist can look at the most intricate design in creation and say, hmm, that just happened by chance. And and he can never see that it has order and structure and therefore must have come for order and structure. Why? Because there's a spiritual agenda at work that he is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And he knows in in his heart of hearts that if he acknowledges that there's a creator that gave that order, then he's ultimately got to admit that he's a sinner, and that's why he's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. He can't, in arrogance, he doesn't want to admit that he is he's a sinner, that he's wrong. So there's this hidden agenda, this worldview at work. Second thing that happens, and, and see, that happens with when you're talking with uh, uh, you know, covenant theologians or replacement theologians. They look at a passage in Scripture, and it just all they see is allegory. Because of their presupposition. Second thing with these liberal Democrats is they're projecting their own patriotism onto Rush and accusing him of exactly the same things that they're doing. And see, people do that all the time. I mean, there's a book written by a guy who's considered world-class theologian, scholars, taught many years at a respected seminary, Vern Poitras, wrote a, wrote a critique of dispensationalism, and ripped everybody out of context and distorted everybody's everybody's words. And we were just appalled when this book came out. It was not even-handed or objective at all. And so this flows out of the whole agenda, worldview, presupposition thing. And as I pointed out earlier, the third thing we ought to note about these people is that they have this idea of meaning that is fluid. That's why they go back and say meaning isn't determined by the author. Meaning is determined by the hearer. So if they hear one thing, and it doesn't matter what the speaker said or what he says he said, because they get to interpret it the way they want to. Okay? So that's just how all of this works itself out. When you live in a relativistic culture, then you're going to have these kinds of problems. Okay, let's look at some things in relation to the text. 
Uh, last time I went through some historical background, and I looked at the fact that you had Alexandrian Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt, who were very influenced, deeply influenced by Greek thought. You had a number of people there like Philo and others who uh, shaped an allegorical interpretation of Jewish of the Jewish Old Testament, and that eventually influenced uh, Jewish interpretation. And then it was in that same location of Alexandria in North Africa that you had uh, a man come up in the middle 2nd century or third, early 3rd century B.C., rather, A.D. 185 to 254, a man by the name of Origen. And Origen held that uh, he's very influenced by Platonic thought, and he was, he was a brilliant man. There were many positive things that he contributed, plus a boatload of negative things. Uh, we could have well done without origin. But he taught that every, every passage has three levels of meaning based on body, soul, and spirit. Body is your literal meaning. Soul is a moral meaning. And spirit is a spiritual meaning. But you, what you have to remember is that the soul meaning doesn't have anything to do with the, the, the lexical meaning of the words, the grammar, or the historical context. Neither does the spiritual meaning. It is just something that is just, it's the imagination of the theologian to come up with that. But I, I was thinking this afternoon that origin actually began with a hyper-literalism. Now, hyper-literalism, we're often accused as dispensationalists, we're often accused of having a wooden literalism where, we're, where we ignore figures of speech. And I would call that a wooden literalism. It's, it's not a true literal interpretation because we believe that you take language at its basic meaning and, and uh, even though you have figures of speech, they refer to something, uh, something literal and they have a, an assigned meaning within the uh, lexicography of the language. But when Origen was a young man and he was dealing with the, a lot of uh, hormonal rumblings, he read the passage in the Gospels that if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. And so he emasculated himself, and Origen went through the rest of his life teaching theology like this. So at one time he had a literal interpretation. See, if he had just waited until he developed his allegorical interpretation, he could have... Saved himself a lot of pain and embarrassment. So we had Origen, and then uh, Augustine sort of solidified and institutionalized literal interpret—I mean, uh, allegorical interpretation—in the Middle Ages. Now, a couple of points that I've added to what we did in the Middle Ages. Number one, I said that in the middle—the Middle Ages, the church, the institutionalized church and theology was dominated by amillennialism and allegorical interpretation. So nobody's thinking outside of that box. Everybody who comes along from Abelard to, from Anselm to Abelard to Thomas Aquinas to Bonaventure to, uh, uh, Hugo of St. Victor, all these guys that are dominating the, the theology of the Middle Ages are all amillennial and they're all allegorical in their interpretation. Now, one of the things about allegorical interpretation that developed in the Middle Ages was the idea that every sentence of Scripture had to refer to Jesus. Every passage of Scripture had to refer to Jesus. And they got this from Luke 24:44. This is when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. This is after the resurrection. Two of his disciples are leaving Jerusalem and going down the road to an, a, a, a little, little village not too far away, about 
10 miles away. And all of a sudden, this stranger appears to them. That's where John Cross got the title of the book, Stranger on the Road to Emmaus. And Jesus has sort of veiled their eyes so they don't know who he is. And he, he talks to them, and he goes through the prophets from all the way through the Old Testament to show that the Old Testament talked about Jesus. And then all of a sudden when he gets there, they realize who he is. So Luke twenty four forty four says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, in allegorical interpretation, they took that to mean that everything in the law and the prophets and the writings, the three divisions of the Hebrew Old Testament, had to relate to Jesus. But the problem with that is you get into verses like First Chronicles 26, 18. At the Parbar, which is a river on the west, there were four at the highway and two at the Parbar. Now, you've got to make that talk about Jesus. See the problem? So you really have to use a lot of imagination, maybe some drugs, whatever it is, to try to make these things talk about Jesus. In the Reformation, the Reformation was preceded by a return to a literal grammatical interpretation. Eventually, all this nonsense about postmodern interpretation and you can't really know meaning, you can't really know truth, and that's what's at the root of, of the whole emergent church movement is that you can't really know truth, you can't be dogmatic about anything, so the only thing we have in common is that we can just come to church and sing emotion-driven songs so that we can all uh, just just revel in our common religious experience that we call Christianity. But let's not try to have any dogma or any doctrine or anything that's right and anything that's wrong because we can't really know those kinds of things. Well, <clears throat> these, this kind of stuff can't work in the real world. You can't operate any of your contracts that way. You can't run legal system this way. It all falls apart. So there's a return to... Literal grammatical interpretation before the Reformation and the original languages, and then we have the Reformation, and you have statements like this from Martin Luther. The literal sense of Scripture alone is the whole essence of faith and of Christian theology. Not Scripture plus the traditional interpretation of the church, not Scripture plus your um, you know, liver quiver, not Scripture plus anything else, just Scripture alone. Calvin also affirmed this. Calvin said it's the first business of an interpreter to let his author say what he does instead of attributing to him what we think he ought to say. See, it's the author of Scripture that determines the meaning of the passage, and ultimately that's, that is the Lord. Now, what's interesting is, to study this period and see what ha- what happens hermeneutically and see how it parallels what's happening today. In 1965, remember this date, 1965, if you remember back that far. Uh, many, many historians will say that 1963 is sort of the benchmark date when everything changed. Music changed, uh, the culture changed, er- everything, education changes, that's the year that Kennedy's assassinates, the year the Supreme Court takes prayer out of the schools. A number of other critical things happened in 1963. So in 1965, a woman medieval scholar by the name of Beryl Smalley wrote a book 
entitled, um, let me pull this chart up here, entitled The Bible in the Middle Ages, The Study of the Bible in the Middle Ages. And she makes several interesting comments. She said, uh, first of all, that, they, that in, in medieval scholarship, she says, they subordinated scholarship, meanwhile, to mysticism and to propaganda. They subordinated scholarship. That is, instead of looking at what the text said, it had to be subordinated to mysticism. So your your other, you all remember I often use this this uh, four stages of knowledge chart I put up there, empiricism, rationalism, mysticism, and revelation. And what happens in every human viewpoint system is that revelation is placed under and gets evaluated by either mysticism, rationalism, or empiricism, whereas the biblical viewpoint is that revelation tells you how to evaluate and provides the safeguards, the governor, the, the controls for reason and feelings and, and empiricism. She goes on to say, again, the crisis in the, in the Middle Ages was reflected in biblical studies. The speculation of uh, Joachim of Fiori. Now, if you don't know who he was, he was a mystic that came up about the year 1000. And he came up with this whole new revelatory scheme. And if you read the, um, oh, uh, uh, read the, the book, The Name of the Rose, uh, he's mentioned in there quite a bit because there's this apocalyptic guy in there that's always quoting fire and brimstone and everything else. And they constantly refer to Joachim of Fiore, which most American readers would have no knowledge about. You really had to have a Ph.D. in Latin and medieval theology and philosophy to even understand the name of the rose. But most people thought it had a good story when Sean Connery was in it. So, uh, but that's what he was. It, it, he just, he he use this mystical hermeneutic system to generate this whole apocalyptic uh, interpretation of Revelation and in times. And since it was the millennium, I mean, you think things got wild here with Y2K. Well, you should have been at Y1K with Joachim of Fiore. I mean, everybody's expecting Revelation to, you know, the beast and everything else to pop out of the ground after listening to him. But it gives this whole new rise of mysticism that uh, comes to play in the later Middle Ages. Now, she also said, revolution and uncertainty have discouraged biblical scholarship in the past. That's talking about the Middle Ages. And stimulated more subjective modes of interpretation. So when you live in periods of change, and we had a revolution in 1963, whether you realized it or not. The 60s were a major revolution in Western civilization. Revolution uncertainty have discouraged biblical scholarship in the past. They did it in the 60s, and they've stimulated more subjective modes of interpretation, i.e. mysticism. You had the, in 1959, you had the beginning of the second wave of the Holy Spirit in the 20th century, according to charismatics, which is the modern charismatic movement when, um, oh, I can't remember, Dennis Bennett, who was the rector of... Uh, Episcopal Church in Van Nuys, California, St. Mark's, stands up and speaks in tongues in church and doesn't leave the denomination. So you have charismatic movement just became mainstream in most denominations. And then she makes a very telling observation. This is in 1964. She said, conditions today are giving rise to a certain sympathy with the allegorists. We have a spate of studies on medieval spirituality. Medieval spirituality is becoming the norm in evangelicalism today. 
I remember in 1999, there was a Grace Evangelical Society meeting in Dallas, and a guy gave an excellent paper on contemplative spirituality. And if you were tuned into what was going on with uh, the New Age movement in the early 80s, that it had gone mainstream by the late 80s, and you could go, you could go to any evangelical bookstore in this city, and you'll find works by St. Uh, Teresa of Avalon, St. John of the Cross, and all these Roman Catholic medieval mystics, and, and nobody even heard of these people in Protestant circles uh, prior to the 80s. But, oh, yeah, this is great spirituality now. Why? Because we've gone into relativism and we've gone into, uh, into mysticism. So I just thought these quotes from, from uh, Beryl Smalley were quite insightful as to what's happened. So this sets the stage for relativistic, uh, relativistic thinking. Now, another problem that we have that comes into play between dispensationalism and covenant theology and replacement theology is how to interpret the Old Testament when it's used in the New Testament. And this is usually classified under the saying, how's the Old Testament used in the New Testament? Remember I pointed out that uh, in covenant theology and, and, and replacement theology, they usually believe that the real meaning of the Old Testament is determined by the New Testament. And there's a very important passage that's just at the crux of a lot of this, and that's in Acts chapter 2. So turn your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. Now, Acts chapter 1 is where we have the ascension of Christ in the first part of the chapter, the first 11 verses, and then the disciples go into uh, the upper room and they uh, draw straws to see uh, who got the spiritual gift of apostleship so that they can replace Judas. That was unauthorized. Uh, people don't decide who has a spiritual gift. God does. I don't think Matthias was a legitimate choice. You never hear about him again. Uh, I don't think he was uh, a, a, a genuine apostle. But they meet. And then if you just, let's just pick up the context a little bit, since I've been pointing out context was important. They have this meeting, and they select Matthias in verse 26. Now, remember, there weren't any chapter breaks or verse breaks in the original. And they, who does a they refer to? Refers to all 120 people in the room. Every place else in the passage, the they, the... um, uh, third-person plural pronoun always refers to the 12, but in this one place it refers to the immediate antecedent in verse 25. They cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, where does the they begin in verse 1? I just read right into chapter 2. I took the last verse of chapter 1, and I didn't stop reading because there was no break in the original. Okay, let me do it again. I want you to pay attention to who the they's are. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Who does the they refer to in verse chapter 2, verse 1? This is your Bible study quiz for the day, pop quiz time. Can you read? Can you interpret? To whom does the they refer in 2 1? 
The apostles, it doesn't refer to the 120, yet you go up to just any place that has religious art, they'll have 120 people on the steps of the, of the temple in Jerusalem getting the, the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But the they there only refers to the 12. You're not going to have 120 people sit around in one of those small 12 by 16 rooms for 40 days. They wouldn't let men and women sleep together like that for, for one thing, and, and it's going to get a little bit stuffy in there for another thing. So several days later, when the day of Pentecost arrives, they're all with one accord in one place. That is the, the 11. They were still called the 12, though, even though they lost one. That had just become a, a title for them. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven. It was of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they, who did they refer to? The apostles. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with tongues, no other in the original, began to speak with languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Josephus tells us that about 150,000 extra people showed up in Jerusalem for the major feast days. When the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them. Who's the them? The Yeah, the 11 apostles. Heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? See, the 120 wouldn't all be Galileans. So that just reinforces the idea that it's only the apostles that are speaking in tongues or speaking in languages. And it goes on and lists the various places where all these people came from and their various language groups. And, you know, it's, a, it's an important study to figure out how many language groups were actually here. I've, I think that it could be as few as seven. I've had others tell me that it's 11. Um, but I think some of these areas had been under Greek control for so long that Greek or... Um, Aramaic were the lingua franca of those areas, and some of them hadn't had been 300 years, but maybe the ancient languages still survive. But it's not a lot of languages. I mean, I'm not diminishing the miracle, but let's just be honest. It's probably somewhere between 7 and 11 languages, so that fits the number of the apostles. So it's just the apostles who initially received the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's, that is so important to understand the whole charismatic thing. And then they're accused of being drunk. Then Peter stands up. Now we've got context. Peter stands up with the eleven, raised his voice, and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, They're not drunk yet. But this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. This is really important. This is a crux passage. Peter says, this is what Joel talked about. Now, what did Peter mean when he said this is what Joel talked about? What did he mean? Did he mean that Joel prophesied this specific event? Well, he then quotes Joel. He says, it shall come to pass. This is right out directly out of Joel 2. It shall come to pass in the last day, says God that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Now, stop. In what we read, that's why I read all of that, in what we read, did their sons and daughters prophesy? No. Okay. 
Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Any young men seeing visions in Acts 2? No. Your old men shall dream dreams. Any old men dreaming dreams in Acts 2? No. And on my men servants and on my main servants I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy, prophesy. Any prophecy going on here? The Holy Spirit has come upon them, but there's no prophecy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. Any blood and fire, vapor and smoke going on here? No, no. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Any moon blood or sun darkness here? No, nothing. And it shall come to pass that whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, what did happen on on the day of Pentecost? They spoke in languages that they hadn't previously learned. Is that mentioned in Joel 2? No. Okay, so what happened on the day of Pentecost isn't mentioned in Joel 2. What is mentioned in Joel 2 doesn't at all happen. None of those things happened in Acts 2. But Peter says... This is what the prophet Joel was saying. So now we have to ask the question, hmm, what did Peter mean when he said that? Because you and I coming with our Western European Greek-oriented frame of reference want to make that say this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, if you're an amillennialist or postmillennialist, or a progressive dispensationalist at Dallas Seminary, then you're going to say, hmm, there is a level of fulfillment here because that's what Peter said. So therefore, we must be in some form of the kingdom because these events that Joel talked about happen just as the kingdom comes in. So if we're in some form of the kingdom... You know, that's what our millennialists said. There's no literal thousand-year kingdom. Christ is now reigning in your hearts, and he is sitting on David's throne at the right hand of God in heaven and ruling from heaven. Okay? Progressive dispensationalists say the same thing. They, they still believe in a future literal millennium, but they say that Jesus is sitting on David's throne at the Father's right hand. He's not just in session. He's sitting on, the, on David's throne. Because this passage is saying that that was fulfilled. Right? Hmm. How are we going to understand this? I mean, this is a big issue. Okay. I got mo- I, I'm, I'm not shy. I got all this from Arnold. I think Arnold did a great job on this. And, and uh, he, Arnold showed that this is how the rabbis, how the Jews at that time in history... We're quoting Old Testament passages four different ways. And you get the examples in Matthew 2. And this is, this is phenomenal. I remember sitting down with Tommy Ice when we were at Dallas Seminary going over this, uh, I don't know how many years ago, and it's like just a blinding flash of truth hits you. And it has uh, helped me in, in understanding all these kinds of Old Testament, New Testament passages through the years. Tommy's written at least, I don't know how many articles on hermeneutics and prophecy, and he always goes to this. Arnold does as well. It's just great material. We're going to go to our first example. How does the New Testament quote the Old Testament? And remember, the writers in the New Testament are Jews. So they are citing things in a typical way that Jews would quote things. And when they say this is that, 
It doesn't mean the same thing it would mean to a Greek speaker. Okay, the first example is where the Old Testament is a literal prophecy. It's a literal prophecy foretelling a future event, and the New Testament passage is simply saying this is how that prophecy is, has been literally fulfilled. So we'll go to Matthew 2, 5 and 6. This is when the Magi show up with King Herod, wondering where the king of the Jews is. And since he's king of the Jews, paranoid Herod uh, just really wasn't liking what he was hearing because the Magi were uh, Parthian kingmakers. And he, so he asked me, he said, well, where is this king supposed to be born? And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophet, or actually he called in his advisors and said, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And his advisors said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now this is a quote from Micah 5.2, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, that's Bethlehem in the territory of Ephrathah. He was an individual. Uh, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. See, it's a literal prophecy. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. It was literally fulfilled. This means that. It's literal prophecy, literally fulfilled. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Okay? The next example still comes out of out of uh, still comes out of Matthew, and this I think Arnold's terminology is a little confusing. This is a literal Old Testament, a literal historical event with a typological application. Typology is when the writer of Scripture uses some. Uh, person or some concrete object in the Old Testament to use it to foreshadow, picture something about the person and work of Jesus Christ or some future event. Matthew 2.15 we read, this is after the uh, Magi have gone to, um, remember the Magi went to Bethlehem, brought uh, gold, myrrh, and frankincense to our Lord, and then they left another way, and then Herod has the slaughter of the infants, and then he finally dies. And in and, and, and between there, the angel appeared to Joseph and told him to uh, leave Judah and head down to Egypt. And then he comes back from Egypt. So we read in Matthew 2.15, And they were there until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Now, this is a quote from Hosea 11.1. So Hosea was a prophet, and so anything that the prophet writes is technically a prophecy. Okay? But it's really just a historical statement. It is a reference to a real historical event, the exodus out of Egypt. You go back and you read Hosea 11.1. When Hosea says, out of Egypt did I call my son, he's talking about who? Israel. Israel is called by God his son in the Old Testament. So Hosea is talking about a literal historical event. It's not a prophecy. It's not a, he's not foretelling anything. 
He's just talking about the fact that back in 1446, God brought the Jews out of Egypt. Historical event, literal historical event. Uh, God has told Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn. It all fits the context. And what what Matthew, the reason Matthew quotes this is he's quoting it typologically. He said, just as that was a picture, just as the Jews came out of Egypt, their, their Messiah is coming out of Egypt. It, it foreshadowed something about the Messiah. It's a typological application. It's not a literal application. It wasn't a prophecy at all. So it's not a literal, literal prophecy or literal application. It's just a typological application of a literal historical event. Then we come to the third use, which comes in the next couple of verses, Matthew 2, 17 and 18. And this is related to the uh, death of the infants, Matthew 2, 17 and 18. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet, that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, a voice was heard in Ramah. Ramah is just... Uh, down by Bethlehem, it's where Rachel is buried. It's within Bethlehem today. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now, what in the world is that talking about? Well, that is a quote from Jeremiah 31:15, where the Lord says, "A voice." Here we go. Thus says the Lord, "A voice is heard in Ramah." Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, it's not literally Rachel. Rachel's been dead for a thousand years or more. Rachel is just, it's, Rachel's the mother of Israel. Rachel was, was Jacob's wife, and she is pictured as the mother of, the mo- representing the motherhood of Israel. Rachel is weeping for her children. Now, what's happening in Jeremiah 31:15? Well, it's 586 B.C. Those of you who are coming on Tuesday night, what happened in 586 B.C.? Nebuchadnezzar came in and wiped out the southern kingdom of Judah. He destroys Jerusalem. He destroys the temple. And he takes all these young men and women captives, shackles them together, and marches them off to Babylon, right down the road past Rachel's grave. And so Rachel, it's a historical event, isn't it? talking about a literal historical event that the mothers of Israel, as they watch the young people being hauled off into captivity, are weeping for them. So Jeremiah 31.15 is, is merely descriptive of a literal historical event. But here it's being applied, not typologically, but just being, being applied that just in the same way that the mothers of Israel wept over their loss of their children in 586 B.C., these mothers in Israel and, and Bethlehem, the same area, these mothers in Israel are weeping over the loss of their, their infants. See, it's, it's this is that. This is, what, this is exactly the same thing that Peter is doing in Joel 2. He's not saying that Joel 2 is being literally fulfilled before your very eyes. It's the end of the day of the Lord. We know that Joel 2 doesn't take place until the end of the tribulation. But what Peter is doing is he's quoting that whole passage to say that what you've just witnessed is a falling of the Holy Spirit upon people and producing miraculous phenomena. That's just like what Joel said was going to happen at the 
end of the tribulation period during the day of the Lord, the Holy Spirit will fall upon God's people and miraculous things are going to take place. That's the only point of comparison. And what you see here, since we're in Hebrews, what you see there in Acts 2, and I think this was typical of, of, of Jewish, the, the way Jews quoted Scripture, is he doesn't just quote the little section or phrase that he wants to apply. He quotes the whole five or six verses, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. He quotes five verses. When we get into Hebrews 8, the writer of Hebrews is going to do the same kind of thing. He's going to quote the whole section in Jeremiah 31 on a new covenant. And then at the end he's going to say, see, new covenant implies that the old covenant had to be temporary because it was going to be replaced for my new covenant. He doesn't exegete or expound or comment on anything else in any of those verses other than the phrase, a new covenant. In our way of thinking, we would not have quoted the other seven and a half verses. We would have only quoted the phrase, see, it was called a new covenant. New covenant means it was an old covenant. But he quotes the whole thing. So that's typical of Jewish uh, quoting, is that they'll quote a whole passage only to focus on one little microscopic uh, detail in there. So that's what's really happening, is that when Peter says this is what the prophet, prophet Joel spoke about, he's really saying this is like, in the same way that Matthew, in Matthew 2, 17 and 18, was saying that, that the same kind of thing is happening now that happened in 586 B.C. The mothers of Israel are weeping over their children. Now the last use, which is really a fun use, this is one of those things that you just love to learn about. Is in Matthew 2.23. When Joseph and Mary came and resided in a city. City is, is just a little overblown. It was, it was a backwater. It, didn't even, it wouldn't have even had a single stoplight. Okay? Or a stop sign. It was just a little backwater village called Nazareth. That what was spoken through the prophets, see, this is what Matthew says, this was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Where in the Old Testament does it say he shall be called a Nazarene? Nowhere. Not one place. Wait a minute, the Bible says the prophets said he will be called a Nazarene. But it doesn't even say that anywhere in the Old Testament. Not one place. So what is going on here? Well... In um, in New Testament times, Nazarenes were were sort of like people. When I was up in New England, one of the first things I learned was people would say, "Well, if you cross the line into Maine, your IQ will drop fifty points." <laughs> Later on, when I'm down the Middle Atlantic states, I learned that if you go to West Virginia, your IQ drops fifty points. Every place, every locality, everywhere in the world has some place nearby that's sort of the the Pasadena of the local area, or the Arkansas of the local area. Anybody here? Nobody's here from Arkansas, so I can say it's it, it's the the it's the low rent district where where people have family trees that don't fork. Okay, so that's what people that that's what people thought about Nazareth is that, that nothing good can come out of Nazareth. That's what they said about Jesus. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? No. You know, why would God come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is nothing. You know, the, the people there are just, they're, they're just birth defects and everything else. They've they got a lower IQ. Uh, this is really, a, there was no respect for anybody who came out of Nazareth. 
Now, what the writer is doing is he's summarizing the basic picture the prophets present is that the Messiah is going to be rejected and ridiculed and they won't have any respect for him. So that's what he's doing when he's quoting. He says, he's sort of saying, in summary, if I want to just paraphrase and pull together the general thinking of what the prophets say about the Messiah is he's not going to be respected. But he put it into their idiom. He said he's going to be called a Nazarene. It's not politically correct. Somebody back then probably should have brought him up on charges for hate speech, but, you know, that's, that's the way the world runs. Okay, so there's four different ways in which the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament. First way is a literal prophecy that has literal fulfillment. The second way is a literal historical event that is applied typologically to uh, something in the life of Christ. The third is a literal historical event that is used by application or applied to a literal historical event that took place in the New Testament period. And then the last way is that it's just the, the teaching of the Old Testament is just summarized and then presented in the, uh, in the New Testament. So then when we come to Acts 2, we realize that Peter isn't saying that this descent of the Holy Spirit is bringing in the kingdom in any way, shape, or form. He's just saying that this event by the Holy Spirit is like what the, was prophesied in Joel 2. And so we can become, uh, we are convinced that this is a work of God and that this is done by God the Holy Spirit. And that is all that he's saying. We're not in the kingdom. Jesus is not on the throne of David. Jesus is seated at the right hand as our high priest. And that's what's significant for the writer of Hebrews. Now, next week, because I forgot to announce it at the beginning, next week there will be no Bible class on Tuesday night or Thursday night. I will be going to Los Angeles for the WHW conference, so we won't have class. Ike usually fills in, but Ike this semester has classes on both uh, Tuesday and Thursday night, and uh, he has a whole week's worth of classes and three hours on that night, so that's asking him to miss too much by... Uh, covering, so we just won't have class. Everybody gets a little break, and then I'll be I'll be here this Sunday, and I'll be back the next Sunday. We'll just miss. I'll just be gone those two those two nights, Tuesday and Thursday night. And uh, when I get back, in the next lesson, we'll get back into the text of Hebrews seven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to uh, see how clearly things uh, make sense once we just stop and interpret them in a normal, plain, literal fashion. Father, we thank you that we have God, the Holy Spirit, to help us to understand these things and apply them in our own lives. And we pray that we would be responsive to his uh, work in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.